Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight on the Upper West Side of New York City. We have got an audience full of smart people, and we'll invite them up one at a time to tell us things that are interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. If all goes as planned, everyone will be a little bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host... An author who's been called America's funniest science writer. Not a long list, let's be honest. Um, But she's pretty great. Would you please welcome Mary Roach? Hi, Mary. Mary, let's see what we know about you so far. We know that you love to immerse yourself in research for your books, whose titles include Stiff, Bonk, and Gulp, which are about, respectively, cadavers, sex, and the alimentary canal. We know your latest book is called Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, for which you observed, if I've got this right, a cadaver-to-cadaver penis transplant. Is that right? Indeed. (laughs) All right, so Mary Roach, tell us something we don't know about you, please. Uh, Okay, my first paying job was uh, plucking ear hairs from my father's ears. And you need to background, my dad was 65 when I was born. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I sat on his lap and I had tweezers and I'd get a penny per hair. And if I got two at once, I got five cents, which was, you know, quite a bonus for a small child. What'd you get for a tuft? Yeah, I left that for my brother. Oh. Because he did it too. We sort of had a... It was, you know, free market economy. Anything else you want to tell us that we don't know about you? Um, I once very nearly threw up on Tom Cruise. Really? I did, yes. I was, uh, uh, I was doing a, a story for, I'm not proud of this, USA Weekend. Yeah. And uh, I went flying with him because he's an instrument-rated pilot and he wanted to, like, show off his prowess. So we went up in this little antique biplane and we did uh, barrel rolls and hammerheads. And at a certain point, I was suddenly very, very, very ill. And the thing you need to know about these little antique two-seat planes is that the passenger is in front, and it's an uh, open cockpit, and the wind is blowing. And so it would have been... What uh, an opportunity. I know. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, Mary, we are really glad you're here tonight for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Uh, here's how it works. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and eventually our live audience will pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? To help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is our good friend. He's also the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically, which is currently being turned into a TV show called By the Book. His forthcoming book is called It's All Relative. A.J., uh, I understand that your father 
holds the world record for most footnotes in a law review article with more than 4,800. That is true. That so is s- true. Since you're checking our facts tonight, I just have to ask, are you as uh, detail-oriented as your dad? Oh, no, I wish. I make mistakes all the time. I, uh, <laughs> in my first book, I made the mistake of misspelling Wayne Gretzky's name. The hockey. I, oh, the gasp, a gasp from the exactly. I spelled it with an S instead of a Z, and I honestly think the biggest mistake of my writing career because I got so much hate mail. People, <laughs> people were so pissed, especially Canadians. I, I was called an asshole with two Zs. <laughs> AJ, good as always to have you here. All right, it is time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first guest, Judith Matloff. (laughs) Judith, hello there. Tell us about yourself. I teach conflict reporting at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and I just came out with a book called No Friends But the Mountains, which is about the link between war and highlands. Very good. Okay, so... I am ready, Mary Roach is ready, A.J. Jacobs is ready. What do you know that you think we don't know that's worth knowing? Take it away. Mountains account for 10% of the world's population and 25% of its surface, yet they host a striking disproportionate number of wars and conflicts. Since World War II, nearly all the um, ethnic, nationalist, violent struggles have been in highlands, Traditionally, mountains have been sanctuaries for bandits, for revolutionaries, and drug cartels. And no conventional army has ever been able to defeat militarily mountain defenders. So mountain regions give rise to conflict, or conflict that would be happening ends up in the mountains because you can't go there and get them? It's kind of both. Um, The physical geographic barriers create a psychological existential one as well. And in terms of causality... Mountains are usually the last place where roads are built, clinics, schools, and they're usually where marginalized minorities are. And also, if you look at it sociologically, mountain communities usually tend to be very insular and very, very suspicious of outsiders. So it's a combination of all three. So it doesn't have to do with the fact that often a border will be uh, a range of mountains and and two regions are fighting over where the border should lie? It can. Also, if you look at Kashmir, you know, caught between India and Pakistan, it can. Basically, every reason that anybody would want to fight, you're going to find it in a mountain. Right, and then when I think of one of the most violent countries in the world, which is, of course, very mountainous, which is Switzerland. Ah. (laughs) But it used to be violent. Uh, We tend to forget. You know, we think about, oh, armed neutrality, cuckoo clocks and all that. But their main export used to be mercenaries. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't chocolate. And only 180 (laughs) years ago, the country was, what's now Switzerland, was torn apart by civil war. And the reason why it's so peaceful is they came up with a solution that I think everybody else should come up with, which is they said, let's not impose one national identity on everybody. We're going to have our four languages, we're going to have our two religions, and we're going to give an enormous amount of power to the cantons. And basically, you can rule yourselves. So people stop fighting. 
Um, can you give some other examples of, you know, either ongoing or recent um, conflicts that are mounted? Just- Afghanistan, Chechnya, Kashmir, there's something brewing in uh, Nepal at the moment. They had a civil war. Mexico, there's Chiapas. So this is one of those interesting ideas that, like, when you say it, and then you offer the evidence, you say, yeah, that, that sounds, you know, uh, right. Um, talk to me about your kind of sense of discovery. How did you come to think about the idea and then explore it? My husband and my son loved to play the game Risk. My son was about, uh, I think, 10 or 11. He was in fifth grade. And uh, he was losing Afghanistan to his father. He's very good at this game. So he wanted a diversionary tactic after five hours. He said, Mom, 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 you get a globe and show me. Like, where, where have you covered and, like, where are the wars going on? So I brought a globe over and I'm kind of spinning around and showing him, pointing with my finger, and he's running his hand over. And he goes, Mom, all these places are mountains. Why is that? And I said, I don't know. Hmm. So give me the numbers again. 10% of the world's population lives in mountainous areas, and yet those areas are responsible or home to what percent of all conflict? Um, The latest UN study was over 80%. Wow. Okay, so here's what I'm curious about. Not all of those 10% who live in the mountains are violent. No. So what did they make of the reputation you've been writing about? I found a group called the World Mountain People Association, Mm. and they meet once a year on somebody's mountain. This year it's Morocco, <laughs> in case you happen to be going there next week. And they, they comprise mountain people from 70 different countries. And they insist that they have a lot in common, which is antipathy towards flatland chauvinism. Meaning the administrating governments tend to be in the lowland cities? Yeah, ah, yeah if you look at the very few world capitals, uh, Bogota, Mexico City, and uh, Nairobi would be among them that are at high altitude, but usually, usually the seat of power is flat, and the most marginalized people are like there. So interesting. All right, AJ Jacobs. Um, before we let Judith go, um, we'll call this one "The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Gunfire." I believe. <laughs> uh, Very catchy. Legit. What can you tell us? Oh yeah, this checks out. Uh, all I have is a little historical perspective that um, the most famous mountain warfare might be the uh, Hannibal crossing the Alps uh, with his army in the 3rd century BC. And he had, as you might know, his secret weapon, which was 40 elephants. And elephants have been described as the uh, tanks of classical warfare, and they were apparently, they were very effective at scaring the enemy, not so effective at surviving. Uh. (laughs) They were, uh, all but one of his elephants was killed, which is why you did not see elephant cavalries in the U.S. Civil War. Uh. Excellent. AJ, thank you. Judith Matloff, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our next guest, Charles Young. Come on up, Charles. Hey, Charles, what do you do? I teach linguistics and computer science at Penn. Linguistics and computer computer science science. at Penn. Um, Okay, what do you have for us tonight? Very recently, I got interested in how children learn to count. This this is really derived from my interest in figuring out how children learn languages because numbers is essentially a linguistic system. Everybody knows to count forever. You can say one, two, three, four, infinity. To my astonishment, I found out that when English learning children can count to 73, they can go all the way. In fact, you cannot find a child who can only count to, say, 80, but not higher. And similar studies have been done on other languages. For Chinese, about 40, 42. So you're saying that 
by the time you can count to a certain number you in a certain language, yes. then you understand the concept of infinity? The uh, concept of infinity, you, you learn the numbers can go on forever. And you're also saying that Chinese kids do it in the 40s and we do it in the 70s. In the 70s. Is and that just... Sorry. Because Chinese kids are smarter? No. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing is that um, those facts are known for a long time, for about 30, 40 years. What I can tell is why the tipping points are at 73 and 42. Okay, we'd like to know. Okay, so let's think about the number system in English, right? So you have one, two, three, four, and so on, to 10. If you look at the 10 numbers, they bear no relation to their quantity. They're just arbitrary symbols, right? Now, of course, when you go on to 10, 11, 11 doesn't tell you it's 10 and 1. It's completely arbitrary. 12, arbitrary. 13, not great, right? It's not 13. 14 is okay. 14, but 15 is a problem. Then 20 is a problem. So if you count up these words that have to be memorized by brute force, there are 17 of them. Okay, so 1, 2, 3, et cetera, are just words, but once you get to, say, 21, you see, oh, 21 means 20 and 1. So kids don't need to memorize by brute force, as you call it, but they start to form a rule for how to name numbers. Right. So many years ago, about 15 years ago, I proved the equation or a theorem that tells you how many words you have to learn to overcome the exceptions you have to memorize. In order to learn a rule, you mean? Right. The equation is n divided by the natural log of n. So it dawned on me about a year ago, if you think about how children are learning counting, they're learning a rule system, in addition to some words they have to memorize by brute force. So you want to know what's the smallest n such that n divided by the natural log of n is 17. Because is everybody following this out there? Because we're going <laughs> to quiz you later. Yeah. Right. Okay. 73 turned out to be the smallest n, such that n divided by the natural log of 73 is 17. The Chinese number system is much simpler. 1 to 10 are arbitrary. Then 11 is 10, 1. And then 10, 2, 10, 3. And 20 is 2, 10. Okay? So if you count up English, you have 17 exceptions. If you count up Chinese, there are 11. Okay? Oh, so with only 11 exceptions, Chinese kids only need to be able to count to 42 to understand that there's a rule for how numbers are named, and therefore they understand infinity faster. Wowzer. How did you ascertain the children got it? Like, oh, now I get it, infinity. That means it goes on and on. I mean, like, what, what, show me, tell me what, what was the experimental test? setup. Like, how did right. you... Um, so one thing is you, you ask them to count, right? By the time they figure out it's low 70s, they go all the way. So that's one way of showing they have this ability to generalize forever. The other way is once they figure out they figure there's a generative rule for, for number formation, they make mistakes. So instead of saying um, 1,000, they say 1,000. Mm. So they have trouble re recording the word thousand, but they know there's a rule there that's going to generalize, so therefore they make up a word for it. Mm. And that's one of the pieces of evidence you know they can go on forever. Mm. A.J. Jacobs, counting to infinity. Um, what more can you tell us? I was actually really taken with the idea of the English words 11 and 12, and uh, I, I looked it up. There actually is a movement to try to change the English words 11 to 12 to the more logical one teen and two teen. Ha! Oh, it does of course not, there is. Well, <laughs> yeah. But 
sadly, it does not seem to be a big movement. It has about one teen supporters on the, uh, <laughs> on the internet. And as for Infinity, uh, in other news, in, an Alabama man in 2007 actually did count to one million for charity. It took him 89 days of full counting, so oh. good use of his time. Very good use of his time. AJ, thank you, and Charles Young, thank you so much. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests will make Mary Roach tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker is A.J. Jacobs. And tonight's co-host is the exceedingly adventurous author, Mary Roach. Mary, before we get back to the game, we've got some lightning round questions written especially for you. Okay, here we go. Ready for them? Uh, First, we'll start with an easy one, a this or that. Sex or food? Uh, uh, Food during sex. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was a George Costanza (laughs) position also, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mary, what is the most difficult or uncomfortable thing you've done while researching a book? Oh, God, for gulp. You know, gulp is a, it's a, the alimentary canal, nose to tail. So for, uh, I like to go places. And for the rectum chapter, um, I had to find, like, where there's no institute of rectal science. And I thought, well, who, like, it's a storage facility. Like, who uses it that way? So I called the California Department of Corrections. Uh, and yep. I said, like, smuggling. Is yeah. there somebody there that I should talk to? And I thought that I would be talking to guards. And, in fact, it was um, this man serving time for murder. And the, the, the guy from the California Department of Corrections, you know, he said, I've set up a time. It'll just be the two of you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he said, will an hour be okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, and and, and you I'm were... like, yeah, to, like, to talk to a stranger about his rectum, I think so. <laughs> it's a little awkward. All right, Mary, in headline uh-huh. form, just tell us a favorite fun fact, something we don't know from your following books. Stiff? Uh, maggots. They sound like Rice Krispies. Really? Yeah. In yeah. A, when they're alive. Eating, chewing, yeah. They have little mandibles. Did anyone yeah. here have Rice Krispies today and won't tomorrow? <laughs> You wrote a book called Packing for Mars. Um, tell us something we don't know about either Mars or the mission to Mars. Well, it was really a book about living in space. And uh, you can't, without gravity, can't flush. No water falling down. So it's an airflow system. So it's kind of like s- sitting on a shop vac. All right, Mary, your TED Talk called 10 Things You Didn't Know About Orgasm has been viewed nearly 22 million times. So here's my question for you. Do you think that's 22 million people or just one guy watching it over and over? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it's one guy and I hope he's not here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mary, you once wrote an article for Salon about pariuresis or pee shyness for which you went to the house of a man with this condition to be his pee buddy. What are the principal duties of being a pee buddy? <laughs> well, let me tell you, um, it's very straightforward. Uh, when you get there, the, the, the person who you're helping um, drinks a lot of water, okay. and then you sit around and chat very, very awkwardly. <laughs> um, and then uh, he gets up to, you know, do the thing that he's very bashful about. Uh, and so I start in the kitchen, ah. and he's in the bathroom, and he'll go, 
I'm starting now, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm in the kitchen, and then he stops, because he's got to have, have good sphincter control, because you don't want to pee the whole thing out, because then you got to start over, and sure. you're there all day. Yeah. So yeah. he'd stop, and then I'd go, okay, I'm halfway down the hall now, and he'd go, okay, here I go, okay, and then I made it all the way to, to the door, and it was life-changing wow. for him. He wrote, so- he wrote me a note and said now that his girlfriend could sleep over, because oh. before... He couldn't get up and pee in the bathroom next to the bed. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think we should all have a pee buddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Mary, I have read that you claim to have no hobbies, and yet you also claim to enjoy backpacking, playing Scrabble, visiting overseas supermarkets, and bird watching. So, my question is do you know what the word hobby means? <laughs> These are not hobbies. These are just diversions. So speaking of bird watching, I understand that you are a heron monitor in downtown Oakland where you live. What is Oakland worried that the herons are going to do? (laughs) Uh, Fall out of trees, actually. They're black-crowned night herons, and they're very stupid birds. And they went and they set up a rookery, the largest rookery in the state, I believe, is, is in Chinatown in Oakland in a series of trees. And the siblings push each other out, and the parents don't go and help and so they flounder around down there and and once they fall out and they're on the ground unable to fly back up then you pick them up and then we no we call i don't pick them up ladies and gentlemen mary roach now let's get on with the show would you please welcome to the stage our next guest maurizio porfiri maurizio welcome Hello. Uh, tell us what you do. So, I'm a professor of mechanical engineering at NYU Tanno School of Engineering. Ah, excellent. I, w- I love having people on the show who, who can explain how things are made and how they work, because we don't know anything here. I don't we- know anything either. Oh, great. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do you have for us tonight, then? So, what I have yeah. is uh, that I study fish and robots. You study fish robots? Yes. Yeah, okay. And uh, what I would like to talk about um, is our work um, on uh, the effect of alcohol on uh, how zebrafish interact with robotic animals. <laughs> all right, so first of all... Yeah, so how do you drink a cocktail underwater is my first question. <laughs> so what you do is simple. You just dump the cocktail in the water. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you're getting fish drunk and then sending robot fish to play with the drunk real fish? Yeah, putting this term is a very exciting <laughs> question. Yes. Is the zebrafish a pretty common or typical yeah. lab uh, research animal? Yeah, so zebrafish are emerging as a mouse of the third millennium. Really? So, yeah. Because so why? They are similar to us, believe it or not. And what they share with us that are very, very common are the diseases. Ah. So you can learn about human diseases. Alcoholism, Acne. for instance. Yes. <laughs> they have a short intergeneration time. Then uh, you can test drugs very easy. You don't need a needle. And they are very social. So you can learn about social behavior. That's what I study. And then we know their uh, genes. So mm-hmm. that's very cool because yeah. when they are little, their, uh, head it, their skull is transparent. So you can see what's going on in the brain. So what you can try to understand is uh, a behavior, how does it map uh, into something going on in their head. So you can try to mm. unveil uh, 
what's our brain. Okay. Wait, you can just you can just look at the brain and you go, ah, I know what he's thinking about. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> no, I actually can't, but other people can. Yeah. I I I look I look at when they are adults. So my work is primarily on adult fish where their sociality is very well developed because I want to study leadership, followership, ah, fear. Ah. So I look so at So you're not on the medical side, you're a mechanical engineer. Yeah. So you're on the robotic fish side. Yep. Okay, so you get real zebrafish drunk for real. For real. Just by pouring alcohol into the water? Really? Yes. That's all you got to do? Yeah. So, and you pick the concentration that you want, and then uh, you can give them a beer or two beers or five beers. <laughs> the, uh, okay. So, and then, so what you do is uh, you do an acute treatment, and then with the acute treatment, then you can try to understand how that treatment changes their sociality. And uh. then what we do is we have a robot that will interact with them. And, and what's they, the robot like? Does it look just like them? Yeah, we do our best to make it look like you them. Make, so you make robotic fish to see if, how the real drunk fish will respond to the, real, to the robotic fish. Is it the same size as the other fish? Yeah, we can make it the same size. And then what's, what's really cool is that we can interact in real time. So if the animal does something, the robot can do something in return. So we can understand how animals chat. So what is very, very important here is that fish are not talking and they are not likely to talk for a long while. So if, you want, uh, <laughs> so if you want to understand what's going on, you need to do experiments. And having an independent variable, which is a robot, allows to test ideas that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So you can change the size of the robot, you can change the color, and see what the animal would do. And understanding how sociality develops across life. Okay, so when you get the real fish drunk, and then you bring in the robotic fish, what do you have the robotic fish do, and what are you trying to see how the real fish respond? Yeah, Alcohol, it, has, um, it can calm you down. So I mean, you can take it as a typical uh, uh, psychoactive compound to lower the level of anxiety. Okay. So that's what we do. Then we can do caffeine to increase the level. So what we do you is... You get them drunk and then you give them coffee. Not the same guy, but different guys. So when a zebrafish I, is really wasted, like, what does it do? Like so we typically don't go to the like, very wasted. Typically, if you give little alcohol, they get excited, so they become less anxious. So they start uh, engaging a lot, and they can, they can also do crazy things, like they can go in front of a predator. They are uh, oh. really cool. Oh. And then if you increase the level of uh, alcohol, they st- it starts impairing the mobility, which is uh, when you get five beers, and then it's so a little minute. more challenging. So are you saying... Yes. The zebrafish, when drunk, do stupid things like humans? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you said you study leadership? You're trying to... Is that what you said earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Explain how the robots and the drunk fish tell you anything so, about that. So what you do is uh, by changing the level of alcohol, you can increase the level of anxiety or decrease it, right? So what you can do is understanding what are the traits that make up a leader. Is a leader a fish or a person that is willing to take more risks? Is a person that can be more active from a physical point of view? And now my peers are going to recognize me. Mm. Will uh, I be perceived as a leader if I go faster than the others? If I am able to take a risk that the others are not willing to take? While so drunk. So my question would be, this sounds super fun and interesting, mm-hmm. but I am curious how it matters, especially for humans. Are mm-hmm. there practical applications either for fish in the wild Mm -hmm. or for learning about fish to tell us more about humans? Yeah. So 
Two things. From the human's point of view, we see a lot of uh, problems dealing with fetal colic syndrome, for example. So you want to understand how uh, the administration of alcohol can change the social development of an individual. So with animals, you can try to do these experiments in a very, very controlled manner. So you can try to really isolate what's going on. And you can utilize a robot to elicit a stimulus that is always consistent. So if you want to check for a social interaction, the robot will always do the same thing. And then you can see how the effect of the compound will change the response of the animal. So we can learn quite a lot. Then, from the point of view of the animal themselves, having robots that can change the behavior of animals is really important if, for example, you have an oil spill or if you have an, a disaster, then you may want to release robots in the wild and use them to move fish no away kidding. to a safer place. So, for example, if you want to push away animals that you don't want in a certain environment, like, for example, the rats in the subway. So if you had a robot <laughs> that can push the rats away, it would be nice. So it's fish behavior you're interested in, not human behavior. I'm interested in fish behavior. Then if I can take some messages on to humans, then it can be nice. (laughs) So interesting. Um, AJ Jacobs, um, drinking with fish, etc. It is real, believe it or not. Uh, And I actually, I went on a little rabbit hole and found a whole body of literature on whether animals get drunk. And it seems they do. Uh, moose, squirrels, fruit flies all like to party. Uh, and the biggest lushes, according to uh, my research, could be the bohemian waxwings. This is our type of bird in the Yukon Territory, and they, they yes. like to party. They cedar like- waxwings, too. Because cedar waxwings, they fly into windows a lot. We looked and then on the Internet, and there it was. They're drunk, drunk. on wow. berries. Yeah, yeah. There you so go. there you go. Well, this I found was interesting. In the Yukon, they actually set up drunk tanks for the, uh, the drunk birds. And the, the birds were brought in, and they were kept in this modified hamster cage until they sober up, and then they let them go. Hopefully, they uh, refer them to a program of some sort. <laughs> I, I wonder if they have room for Maurizio's fish in the uh, drunk tank. Do they, get, do they get hungover? I mean, is it, I mean, do you care if you kill them all, really? No, they, so what we do is we do all acute treatments. So after a few hours, you can uh, just recover. You'll be just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay, <laughs> Maurizio, thank you so much. Stay with us. There's more stuff you didn't know. We will be right back. Welcome back. Would you please welcome our next guest, David Greer. Hi, David. Tell us what you do, please. Hi, Stephen. I'm a professor of physics at New York University, and I'm the director of NYU's Center for Soft Matter Research. Center for Soft Matter Research? Mm. Meaning what? It's it's a new field in physics. It's the search for nature's fundamental organizing principles, how it all goes together. Huh. Uh, The converse is hard matter? Well, hard matter is, uh, focuses on the quantum mechanical properties of typically electrons moving in matter. Okay, so what do you have for us tonight? Okay, so uh, my group figured out how to modify a laser beam so that it exerts forces on things. And the interesting thing about that is uh, these modified laser beams 
don't push things the way ordinary waves do. They pull. They pull things in along their entire length. So if you're a science fiction fan, you'll recognize that this is a tractor beam. So we have science fiction technology you're, that's... Wait, this is re you're saying this is real? That they're the tractor beam where you suck up a cow from the flying saucer kind of tractor beam? So it's not, not like large things like a cow or a spaceship, but microscopic things like a biological cell. Um, then those beams of light will, will pull these things upstream along the entire length. And that actually works. And, and AJ, we published it, you can see. <laughs> so um, describe the experiment um, that produced this finding. It's in, it's in a lab, presumably. It, it's, it's in a lab downtown in Greenwich Village. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it actually started out as an experiment gone wrong. We were trying to grab small objects with, with beams of light and move them around to see how they would respond to these forces. And uh, they went the wrong way. We were bummed. But fortunately, uh, we were also science fiction fans and one, two, five beers later you realize, holy cow, you know, that's not a bad thing, that's a tractor beam, we just discovered something. Is that so where the phrase holy cow comes from? <laughs> Actually, I cleaned that up for radio. <laughs> <laughs> so let me understand, you're saying uh, some kind of la a laser... Yeah, so, it, so it's a laser beam, but an ordinary laser beam, if I light you up with it, it's going to push you. Now, it's not going to push you very hard. Uh, there's not a whole lot of force in a beam of light, uh, but it'll push. And the trick was to restructure that laser beam so that, that that tendency to exert forces gets turned on its head, and instead of pushing, now it pulls. And, and for physicists, the idea that the sign of the force can flip, that's a surprise. That's, that's a surprising observation because it runs counter to like 150 years of, of understanding really? of, of how these things work. But the fun thing is, it was in the equations the whole time. We just didn't realize it. So this fortunate accident opened our eyes to something that was hiding in plain sight the whole time. What is it about the characteristics of that laser that pulls versus pushing them? So, so like all waves exert forces. So if you go to the beach, the waves uh, push you ashore. So that's a wave exerting force. And so the wave has some momentum. Now, there's a symmetry of nature called conservation of momentum. If you've got a system that has some momentum in it, uh, unless you do something dramatic, that's not going to change. So now imagine you've got a wave coming ashore, and you put something in that wave that either absorbs the wave or scatters it out of the way. Now, ordinarily, that would mean that there's less momentum downstream than there used to be, right? So if there's less momentum downstream than there used to be and momentum is conserved, something has to make up the difference. And that something is the recoil of the thing that scattered the mm. wave. Okay, so now, if you restructure the beam so that not all of its momentum is pointing downstream, but some of it is, is, is stored in sort of a, a sort of wibbly, uh, standing wavy... Is that a science word, wibbly? Yeah, absolutely. No, it is now, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, so, so, so if you store some of that momentum in, in a sort of standing wave nature of the beam, then uh, you put an object in this new modified beam, it can actually scatter some of that stored momentum into the forward direction. Now there's more momentum downstream than there used to be. So when the thing recoils to conserve momentum, it has to recoil backwards. And the trick is to figure out what structure the beam has to have in order to have that property. So how long before we are lifting cows? <laughs> well, according to Star Trek, that's the 24th century, so we're 300 <laughs> years ahead of time. This is really good. 
we're making excellent progress. No, uh, so, so, <laughs> no so, so the things we're moving with light are really microscopic, so it's like the worst possible wave to make a, a tractor beam out of. Um, so you can make a tractor beam out of a sound wave using the same principles, and that's going to pack a lot more punch. So, that's, mm. uh, so, so we and other groups around the world now are, are working to make acoustic tractor beams. David, I have to say, you seem really excited about this. Oh, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful, right? It's like Star no, Trek working. Well, beyond your excitement as a physicist and the excitement of discovery, um, excite the rest of us. What are some potential practical applications? Are they're medical, etc. So, so um, really up front, the reason we're, we, we started doing the experiment is, is because of the surprise in the science. But you actually can use these things. So we are uh, collaborating with wonderful uh, partners at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in, in Maryland. And the idea there is to take our tractor beams, scale them up, and actually uh, put them into, uh, into space for cometary exploration to pull uh, dust out of comet tails, for planetary exploration to pull mm. dust off the surface. So space vacuum. Absolutely, right. Uh, mm. uh, only in space there's no air, so you can't have a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you need the tractor beam. Could you make one of your special like, <laughs> laser flashlights that like AJ has a bottle of water on his table, and I want it, but I can't reach it, and he might not give it to me, and I could just like... Suck it over here and get his bottle of water. Okay, how so, soon could I have that? So if we go back to the calculation, like how much force you can exert, you realize that it really is the sort of the force that a flea exerts when it lands on your skin. Mm-hmm. If you want to move something big, you'd have to use a lot more light. You'd have to scale up the power. So to move something like the size of a water bottle, then uh, it would take gigawatts of power. And so you'd vaporize the bottle before you moved it. <laughs> also fun. Damn. No, no. <laughs> You know, stuff like that is why you go into physics. <laughs> no, but, um, but, but with, with sound waves, you could probably do it. Mm. Uh, AJ Jacobs, so interesting. We're hearing about, I guess you'd call it, you know, the tractor beam is real, right? I mean, it that's, is. Uh, that's the idea here. What more can you tell us, AJ? Well, this checks out, and I love it. I, I wanted to know what other Star Trek devices have come true, and, and there are actually a couple. There is a real-life phaser, kind of, The military has a device called a Dazzler, which Hmm. uses these uh, lasers to temporarily blind your enemies. Uh, So it cannot set it to stun, but it does set it to dazzle, which actually (laughs) (laughs) sounds kind of cooler. There's also a syringe without needles, like one the one Bones uses. You can inject medicine using air pressure, just like shoot it right in there. And there are also a couple of ear computers that offer simultaneous translation of 70 languages, uh, mostly Earth languages, no Vulcan. AJ, thank you. And David Greer, thanks so much for playing. And would you please welcome our final guest of the evening, Christopher Mowdy. Christopher, tell us what you do, please, sir. I manage a laboratory that studies the psychology of the sense of smell at the Monell Chemical Senses Center. And I might add, having been there, that the smell lab that you are, there's a giant bronze nose sculpture outside. <laughs> Did the two of you have a previously existing relationship, I'd like to ask? <laughs> it just so happens that my IDK yeah. involves a procedure that Mary Roach has been through, and I it has so to do with. I am so going to get you. Uh, <laughs> So Mary Roach has been to your lab as a reporter, Mary? Is that right? As a reporter and a, and a subject. All right. So my IDK is that human stress sweat, that can be discriminated and distinguished by other humans 
from non-stress sweat. Further, but wait, there's more. <laughs> the people who smell the stress sweat, it actually affects their task performance, so it changes their behavior. Oh, okay. So there's stress sweat oh, yes. and non-stress sweat. Non-stress sweat is just you're hot and you perspire? Uh, yes. So there are two different kinds of sweat in general. So uh, the eccrine glands are the ones that uh, thermoregulate. They cool you off when you're hot. And then the apocrine glands um, are actually tethered to the roots of your hair and they're in your armpits as well as your ears, um, as well as your eyelids. And uh, they secrete when you're under stress. Now, to put it more accurately, when you're hot, you're secreting mostly eccrine sweat with a little bit of apocrine. When you're psychologically stressed, you're secreting mostly apocrine gland uh, ah. secretions and a little bit of eccrine. Okay, so when you had Mary down at your place, what kind of sweat did you want out of her and how did you get it? <laughs> I wanted to stress her out. Uh -huh. And yeah. according to the data file that I have of her heart rate, I did a very good job. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. What's yeah. The, what, you know what happened? He did? Yeah. Okay, this is what he does to people. This is what he does. <laughs> okay. First of all, he's filming me. And then I'm, he's I'm like, telling you that I'm filming you. Oh, you weren't. Oh, okay. Well, so oh, so uh -oh. he's got the camera set up, and he said, you're going you're gonna to count backwards from 200 by 13s. <laughs> and when you get it wrong, you have to start over. And, uh, and, then, and he was not very friendly about it. And then at a certain point, he threatened to post the footage and meanwhile, I've got a little pad I'm holding under my... Sweat I'm pad co under your... collecting the flop sweat. The procedure that she was referring to is a standardized procedure. It's called the Trier Social Stress Task, the TSST. And it's a math task as well as a public speaking task. Some people are good at math. Some people are good at public speaking. Few are good at both of them. Mm. So it is, a, it is a way to activate uh -huh. the HPA axis and to get that psychological stress. And I got the white lab coat on. I got my clipboard in front of me. I allow you to prepare five minutes for a speech after the preparation time I take away any notes that you have and I have you do mental arithmetic and I'm talking in a much more stern manner than I am now which is like my colloquial hey nice Chris version <laughs> I'm sweating I gotta say I would like to collect that sweat <laughs> my favorite part was afterward I had him smell a little pad and, and tell me you know give me an honest assessment and he said this is a wonderfully fresh B.O. smell oh what are you trying to figure out by measuring how the stress sweat is produced or how people smell the stress sweat differently from the non-stress sweat? Okay, so what we do is with that donated uh, stress and non-stress sweat samples is we have a panel of people smell them. For one study, we had people smell them just to determine whether or not humans can discriminate between stress and non-stress sweat of other humans, because that in and of itself is interesting, because we're more, mostly visually oriented and auditorily oriented, mm. and we have shown that to be the case. Above hmm. chance, humans can detect stress versus non-stress sweat from other humans. Secondarily, we had a different study where a, a bunch of panelists, male and female, came in, and they watched videos of women doing specific tasks. While they were watching the videos, they were being presented with either the stress sweat, the non-stress sweat, or the um, exercise sweat. And after each video, the participant has to rate the woman in the video on dimensions of how stressed she was, trustworthy, competent, or confident. It just mm -hmm. so happens in the presence of stress odor, the panelists determine the women in the videos to be significantly less trustworthy, mm. less competent, and less confident. Mm. So not to give too much credit to evolutionary biology, but doesn't this make perfect sense that we would have evolved to sense 
when people are stressed or anxious or maybe hostile versus just having exerted themselves? It is surprising because to see it in humans, that hasn't necessarily been demonstrated. Of course, there are anecdotes. I have a, a friend who is into wrestling, and, and he claimed that he could smell the fear of his opponent, and when he <laughs> detected it, he knew he was going to win. Other mammals mm. are very good at this. For it to be demonstrated in humans is a big deal. Uh, AJ Jacobs, smelling stress sweat. Um, what more can you add? Well, there's no way I'm going to dispute Chris because I do not want to see mean Chris. So, because uh, <laughs> I'm already scared. But, uh, but it did send me down a little tangent of other body odors. And it turns out, scientifically, there is such a thing as old people smell. Hmm. Uh, the, the Japanese have a word for it called uh, kareshu, and it's described by the National Institutes of Health as an unpleasant, greasy, and grassy odor. Oh. And it's, it's from too much fatty acid in our skin, which uh, happens when we age. Good news is that in Japan, they now sell anti-old people smell products. <laughs> AJ, thank you. And Christopher, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Can we give one more hand to all our guests tonight? Our live audience is about to pick a winner, but first, Mary Roach, AJ Jacobs, and I will weigh in with our favorites. Remember, everyone, the three criteria. Did our guests tell us something we really did not know? Was it worth knowing, and was it true? Mary, I'm curious to know what impressed you tonight or perhaps distressed you. I'm just pretty excited. I mean, I guess the infectious enthusiasm for the tractor beam. Mm. I'm pretty psyched about the tractor beam. And can you see uh, you'd like to incorporate that into your life once it got to move heavy things around? I'm pretty lazy, so I'd love to have <laughs> just a handy beam at my disposal. Uh, AJ Jacobs, what caught your eye? Here? I thought they were great. Uh, I don't know. I didn't know all of them. Uh, I am fascinated by, uh, by counting and just how horrible the English language is. Mm. <laughs> it is really hard for me to pick a favorite. I'm really glad to know from Judith Matlov that the Swiss were so violent. Uh, I, I <laughs> take great comfort in that. I think um, I can't get past how exciting uh, the drunk fish are. <laughs> but I thought that really everybody tonight was, um, was fantastic. So thanks to all of you for bringing so much uh, stuff to our stage. All right, then, audience, you have heard from us, but we don't pick the winner. You do. It's time now to do that. Please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen. So who will it be? Judith Matloff with The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Gunfire. Charles Yang with Counting to Infinity. Maurizio Porfiri with Drunk Fish, Robotic Fish, and the Scientist Who Loves Them. David Greer with The Tractor Beam Is Real. Or Christopher Mowdy with Smelling Stress Sweat. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to this show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight... Someone who came and told us about those drunk fish, Maurizio Porfieri. Congratulations. Maurizio, to commemorate your victory, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge. And that's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to Mary, AJ, to our guests. 
And thanks to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. And coming up next time, CBS News correspondent Alex Wagner joins us as co-host. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>